welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on January 26th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky, and I have a touch of laryngitis, so bear with me. This week on the podcast... Madison wasn't just uh, telling Jefferson about weasels and, and measurements. He was measuring the sexual organs of these weasels. I mean, and, and making charts of the length of them and telling Jefferson, you know what, our weasels come up pretty good. I assume I got your attention. That's Lee Dugatkin, and he's the author of a fascinating article in the new February issue of Scientific American called Jefferson's Moose. We'll talk to him, and we'll also test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Lee Dugatkin studies the evolution of social behavior at the University of Louisville, and he also became intrigued by this little-known story about Jefferson and some others of the founders and their quest for... Well, I'll just I'll just start playing the interview. I called Dr. Dugatkin at his office in Louisville. Thomas Jefferson, clearly one of the most famous figures in American history, but this particular story not so well known. Why don't you tell us what was going on in revolutionary America where Thomas Jefferson I mean, it sounds like a Monty Python sketch, but it's real. It, it, it really does sound like Monty Python, but, but it really did happen. Um, we're talking sort of 1770s, 1780s here, and Jefferson is responding to this uh, theory that's all over, um, that emanated from France, from a, a, a philosopher naturalist by the name of Count Buffon, who was probably the most famous scientist of the time. And Buffon had claimed that all life in the New World, and particularly in America, was degenerate. It was weak and shriveled and small compared to life in the Old World. Um, this infuriated Jefferson um, for all sorts of reasons, economic, philosophical, natural history reasons. Others had taken Buffon's ideas and expanded on them and made them even more grand in scope to include humans in the new world being inferior to humans in the old world. And so Jefferson took it as one of his missions to to show the world how wrong Buffon was. And and one of the ways that he wanted to do this was was through uh, handing him a giant moose. So why did Buffon believe this obvious, what we would now call nonsense, that species in America were somehow inferior? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, you, you gotta put yourself in, in that time. And, and, and again, it's important to sort of recognize Buffon's stature at the time. This is a guy whose natural history encyclopedia that he wrote was about 40 volumes, 6,000 pages, um, still used today in many ways. So he was a great natural historian and he, but it came to this theory that, that quickly was called the theory of new world degeneracy. He came to this because the information he was getting from travelers in particular who had gone to America and come back um, had suggested to him that, in fact, the, the species in, in, in America, um, especially the animals, were, were smaller, weaker, and feebler than, than everywhere else. And, um, you know, Buffon, he was he was aware of the fact that when people come back on these from these trips, they tend to exaggerate. And he really did try to vet some of this stuff. But at the end, when he went through all the kinds of stories he was getting, and when he went through some of the older natural history that had been, that had been written about America, he came to the conclusion that, th- that this was, this was really a, a phenomenon, that these things really, life in America really was degenerate. And being, being the scientist that he was though, he, he, he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted a theory for why 
that should be the case. And um, what he came up was, with was that um, there were basically two things that made life in the new world degenerate. The first was that the new world was cold. And the second was that the new world was humid. And he believed that that combination was what caused all life to shrivel up and get small. And, you know, if we think about it for a second, we realize, you know, who are these people that Buffon's getting this information from when they come, you know, they're French, they come over to the new world, to America, probably to make some money. They come back and they talk to Buffon. The chances are that many of them spent their time either up in Canada doing some sort of trapping or where, where it's really cold, or they spent their time in Louisiana where it's incredibly humid. And so he was getting this really biased sample uh, of what the new world uh, environment was like, but that's what he had. He had never left, um, he, he'd never been to the new world, certainly, and he had never left Europe, in fact. So this, this was the information that he had. And uh, he thought that it all fit together. You know, you tell a story in the article, just to give people an idea of the kinds of bad intelligence that were coming back from uh, visitors to the New World, there was a fellow named Peter Kalm who was sent by the Swedish Academy to study actual natural history in America, and he comes back and alleges that he saw a bear kill a cow by biting into the hide of the cow and then blowing the cow up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. These are just sort of gigantic traveler's tales and 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 the, the calm story is a great one there, there there are others there are people that came back and they were they were swearing that there were 38 pound frogs in the uh in the swamps of louisiana now in most cases they probably said well we never actually saw one but we talked to lots of people who live right next to them and and uh and, and they're real i mean there were <laughs> two-headed snakes there were beavers that sort of worked at night as a team to dismantle things people had made sort of intentionally to do this other others that had um, other animals that that were sort of uh, acting as as guards and and people would sort of take these animals and they put them around them when they went to sleep and the animal would wake them up intentionally if there was danger around these kinds of traveler tales were 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 really popular when people traveled you know thousands and thousands of miles and then came back they wanted to get their money's worth out of uh, out of it when people listened to them and we should point out that the frog situation may seem like it goes against the degeneracy yeah. idea because those frogs would be bigger That's and the right. degeneracy idea says that the animals would be smaller. But, but the rationale there was, well, if, and also, uh, mosquitoes would That's be, right. would be bigger. So the rationale there was, uh, well, everything is really pretty cruddy and yeah, most things are smaller, but the things that you would like to be smaller are actually bigger. Exactly, exactly. The exception proved the rule in this case. Uh, you know, yeah, they have giant insects and frogs, but that just proves the point that this is, this is a degenerate backwater. And you know, this, it had some, you know, practical implications too. They were also claiming that, that, um, that when you brought animals into the new world, they degenerate and that, and that meant that, um, that all the sorts of things that people like to eat, cows, pigs, that sort of thing, um, they were going to be scrawny. Um, and, and, and so, uh, the, the culinary effect of this was real in, in the minds of the Europeans is, uh, too. And ultimately, anybody who came over here to live would also degenerate as would their progeny. And this was the, the idea that really bugged Jefferson as, uh, also Hamilton, James Madison got involved. Absolutely. And, and they, they all thought that this was really an important thing 
to disprove because they were worried about the political and economic effects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they were really concerned about it. All, all the founders you, you mentioned um, had, had written about this. Some of them had written to Jefferson about it. Hamilton talks about it in Federalist Number 11. So they were particularly concerned about the claims that um, humans who came here would degenerate and their offspring would. Now, to be fair to Buffon, he didn't say that if Europeans came here, they and their children would degenerate. That was one of his groupies, and um, two of them, actually, uh, Reynal and, and DePauw, who had written follow-up books to Buffon and, and carried his theory over to suggest that if you came over here from, from Europe, you would degenerate, and so would your kids. And so the founders were really worried about it. Economically, they were, they, they were legitimately concerned that Europeans would be paying attention to this, and they very much were, and that they would, the Europeans would say, well, why, you know, why in heaven should we take our money? and go over to the New World when it's this horrible backwater. Jefferson and Hamilton particularly were, were worried about this. And of course, you know, there, there was the concern that this went against the, the premise of, of a beautiful new republic where people could rise to the heights that, that they were meant to rise to. But they were concerned about the practical aspects um, quite a lot. And in fact, uh, one quick story here is one of the folks um, who who was promulgating this idea that humans would degenerate when they came over here was Cornelius de Paw. He actually was hired by Frederick, who was the king of Prussia at the time, to head a bureau in Prussia whose sole goal was to figure out ways to stop Prussians from taking their money and coming over to the New World. So the king picked someone who specialized in this degeneracy idea as as the person to head a bureau to stop people from moving to the New World with their money. So the things that Jefferson and Hamilton and Adams and Madison were all worried about, they they have good reason to be worried. This is This is what was happening. And uh, you also, you mentioned in the article, when Jefferson died in 1826, uh, a New York senator named Sam Mitchell at the funeral in a eulogy, just to give people an idea of, of how important an issue this actually was at the time, as amazing as it might seem today. At the funeral, Senator Mitchell said that the anti-degeneracy campaign was the equivalent of proclaiming independence a second time. So yeah, I, this was a really big deal to these people. It absolutely was. I mean, the, the idea of degeneracy and then Jefferson's showing the world why this was a mistake. The, this was everywhere. Buffon's book, his, his encyclopedia, which was a series of books, these were extraordinarily popular, popular in Europe. Jefferson wrote a large chunk of the only book he ever put out, it as a refutation of Buffon. People talked about this in the coffee houses of Europe and they talked about it in, in the pubs in the United States. The founders were involved. This was in newspapers everywhere. This was the talk of the times. It affected almost every aspect of, of the human imagination, politics and philosophy and, and, and economics and, and social stature. I mean, there, are, there, there are French historians today who will tell you that you can trace the birth of French anti-Americanism back to this claim. And so you, you can see why Jefferson in particular was so passionate about, about showing the world um, how, how bad an idea this was. And you have, to, you have to remember that in every other context, Jefferson was sort of the most friendly of the founders to France. I mean, this was a guy who loved France. He went there as a minister. He absolutely adored living in Paris. And so for him to take this on as a mission shows you how important it was. You mentioned Jefferson and his book in uh, Notes on the State of Virginia. He talks a lot about the degeneracy idea and disproving it. And he also assembles actual data 
And here's an amazing aspect of the story, but James Madison, who winds up being Jefferson's successor as president, is basically Jefferson's research assistant, and they're measuring the sizes of American animals. And Jefferson is getting correspondence from Madison where Madison has detailed measurements of weasels. So these guys, it also shows you just that natural history and science was a part of their daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, natural history had a very, very different meaning in those days in the sense that, you know, what you knew about natural history could save you or kill you depending upon the situation. And so people really had a, a much deeper connection to this. Like you say, Madison was, uh, I mean, he, and he wasn't just, he wasn't just, uh, telling Jefferson about, about weasels and, and measurements. He was measuring the sexual organs of these weasels. I mean, and, and making charts of the length of them and telling Jefferson, you know what? Our weasels come up pretty good compared to European weasels here. I mean, he was very serious. Uh, an entire page of a letter Madison wrote to Jefferson is a table about these weasels and 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 madison says use this in your argument against buffon i mean this was something that that these people were really really passionate about hamilton adams madison all of them and And, of course jefferson who, who really led the charge and when jefferson was in the white house he actually had a room just for his fossils so he was really into this stuff Absolutely. I mean, he was one of the first real paleontologists. I mean, he, he, he collected these things. Um, he was really a scientist at heart. He would often, um, talk and he would write letters to his daughter in which he would say things like, you know, he, he really thought his, that, that, that he was put on earth to be a scientist and that he was sort of stuck into this role of, of politician, even though he didn't want it. He's always talking about sort of being able to cast off the shackles of being a politician and just do what he really loved, which was, it's studying natural history and other branches of science. So this was, you know, this was his real love in life. So why don't we talk about the actual moose now? Because Jefferson gets it into his head that when he goes to France to be the ambassador, if he can only present a magnificent specimen of an American moose to Buffon, it will help convince Buffon that the degeneracy theory just doesn't hold water. Right. So when Jefferson begins to learn about this, the degeneracy theory, he decides that what he needs is, is something, um, physical, something real that he could show Buffon how wrong he was. And there was a couple of options he could have gone with. Um, but he decided to go with the moose because it was something that was roaming around America and that it was gigantic. And he could ask his hunter friends to give him all sorts of information about how the big the moose got to be. And then he could get them to hopefully capture one of these things, kill it, and and he could take the the skeleton and, and give it to Buffon and say, see, now, you, now you, you basically have to admit you're wrong. I mean, look at the size of this thing. These things are roaming around America. How silly is this idea of degeneracy? And the thing is, you know, he... He actually got passionate about this even before he was going to be minister to France. I mean, this this hunt for the perfect moose to show Buffon the error of his ways went on for about eight or nine years. And it was sort of towards the end of it that Jefferson got this opportunity to go to France. So he was really frustrated that he didn't get this giant moose. And then he actually ended up being not so mad because he was then offered the position as minister to France. And now he thought, well, you know what? If I got it before, I would have had to send it to Buffon 
gone and somebody else would have had to give it to him. But now I'm going to be there. And so if I can just get this moose sent to me while I'm there, I'm going to walk it over to Buffon and show him in person. And so he writes to all his hunter friends, letters and letters and letters, and they're writing back and forth about things that they've seen and stories that they've heard and moose that they've seen. But they hadn't gotten the quite the right one for him yet when Jefferson went over to France. But once he got over there, his buddy, John Sullivan, who was a Revolutionary War hero and who had been writing Jefferson literally for years and years about this moose, finally bagged one for him that was probably seven to ten feet tall. And he didn't just get this moose. Sullivan hired a team of a dozen men who went out into the cold December of New Hampshire and tracked down a giant moose, dragged it 20 miles back to Sullivan's house. And then they had to prepare the moose and get it ready to crate over to Jefferson. So the moose finally, after various mishaps that you talk about in the article, arrives in Paris. It finally gets there after a whole series of almost sort of Laurel and Hardy like things happening. But he, but the, in, in fact gets over there, Jefferson is ecstatic. Um, he wants to, uh, literally take the moose skeleton and bring it over to Buffon himself. But by this time, Buffon is an old man and he's sick. And Jefferson asks if he can bring this, but Buffon's assistant says he's too sick to see anybody. So Jefferson, uh, puts it back in the crate, sends it over to Buffon. Buffon's assistant says the count got the moose and Jefferson writes in his journal that Buffon said that after he saw the moose, he would essentially retract the degeneracy argument. And so Jefferson was absolutely ecstatic about this. This is about 1787. The problem is, six months later, Buffon is dead. And there is no retraction. And so the degeneracy argument stays in Buffon's Natural History Encyclopedia. It's still there today. Jefferson knew that Buffon knew he was wrong, but he also knew that it was still in natural history and that people were going to be talking about this for a very long time. And indeed, they did. So how did we actually, we New Worlders, establish our reputation as being non-degenerate? Well, a large part of it was, in fact, due to Jefferson. So even though the retraction never came, people knew what Jefferson had to say, both by the notes on the state of Virginia and also because the moose story quickly uh, spread. It was a legend very quickly at that time. And what was happening at the same point was that many, many people knew about Buffon's theory of degeneracy. And in fact, there's a good argument to be made that the first school of natural history in America was born in response to Buffon's claim. And so as we get to the sort of late 1700s, early 1800s, there's this emerging school of really good American naturalists who were essentially weaned on this idea that one of their national duties was to show the world that we were not a degenerate backwater like Buffon said. And now their works are coming out. Now they're becoming more respected as scientists. And so slowly, this word is beginning to leak out to the rest of the world that um, all of the evidence suggests that this is a really bad idea. But and in the meantime, it was, you know, from the late 1700s through about, you know, the early 1800s, people were still writing about this. They were writing poems. They were writing odes. Um, they were thinking about it when it came to economics. And so, you know, eventually the word got out how, how silly this idea was. But it took a while. And it, we could sort of tie it back to both the birth of American natural history and the birth of French anti-Americanism. So it's really 
a politically philosophical important issue that sort of has escaped our attention for, for about 150 years now. And some really prominent American writers took on the, the cause as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so arguably the first true American author um, who, who got any attention outside of America was Washington Irving. And Washington Irving writes at length about the degeneracy argument. He um, He mocks it. He makes jokes about it. He writes these stories that are essentially there to show the world how beautiful America is. And in there, he specifically says things like, you know, this should set the world straight on how silly Buffon is. I mean, he talks about Buffon in there. He talks about the theory of degeneracy. And he does these very humorous mockings of it as well. Um, Henry David Thoreau wrote about it, again, saying what a silly idea this is. So now we're ready, you know, in the 1850s with Thoreau, who's, you know, a passionate naturalist himself. and And he writes about what silliness this is and that people are still talking about this today. A number of other major authors wrote about this as well. So this was, in fact, there's this really humorous story where Joel Barlow, who was part of a, a group at the time that was known as the Hartford Wits. And so he was a, he was essentially a, a, a satirist who wrote for journals and newspapers around the United States. And he wrote this amazing satirical piece about the, the theory of new world degeneracy, where he said, you know, Buffon and his crew, they almost got this right. They almost got it, the degeneracy theory right. The only problem was that when they were standing on the coasts of Europe with their giant telescopes checking out America, they had the telescopes pointed the wrong way. And so, so, so they thought everything w- w- was tiny. And it was, and he just goes on and on about this um, uh, verse after verse in this beautiful satire where he's mocking this, this idea how silly this is. There's a great story in the article, which we won't go into into detail, but uh, it, it concerns a bunch of Americans and a bunch of Frenchmen at dinner where this theory is being discussed. And the Americans basically stand up and they're all way bigger than the Europeans. So I, I won't go into the detail, but this also involves another incredibly famous founding father uh, as part of this dinner story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was... They, they basically said we could have tossed him out the windows if we wanted to. Right. Um, you know, any yeah. any one American could have tossed any two of the Frenchmen out the window. That's right. Yeah, that's a great story. I mean, and that just shows you this was what people were talking about over dinner at uh, in France and in America. It's an amazing story in the February issue of Scientific American. It's called Jefferson's Moose. If anybody wants to get even more, uh, Dr. Dugatkin has an entire book out on this subject called Mr. Jefferson and the giant moose. And, uh, how did, how did you get interested? Well, why don't you tell us what do you actually do? You know, what's your day job? Because you are not a professional moose historian. I am not a professional moose historian. That's true. I am actually an evolutionary biologist, uh, is my day job. And so, you know, I, I, and I'm particularly interested in, in, um, the evolu- evolution of animal behavior, but this story really has very little to do with, um, with, with the evolutionary side of what I, what I do. I, I was, I've always been a, a passionate historian myself and, and particularly fascinated by the revolutionary war era. And so I came across this, um, th- this story and I realized, you know, nobody knows this and it's an incredible tale. And so it allowed me to, to tie together my, my, my interest both in American history and in, in natural history um, in, in one shot. So, and it was um, by far the most fun project I've ever gotten involved with. I mean, you know, for an evolutionary biologist to sit in their office and read Jefferson letters and think that they're actually doing their job. That's that's pretty sweet. And for anybody in the Washington, D.C. area, you're going to be giving a talk at the Smithsonian in February. 
That's right. On uh, February, I think it's Saturday, February 12th, they're doing sort of a day-long workshop on Jefferson and natural history. A lot of it's going to center on the Lewis and Clark expedition, but I'm going to be talking about the degeneracy uh, theory. I th- so, yeah, I believe it's Saturday, the 12th of February. Anybody can just uh, Google Lee Dugatkin and the Smithsonian, and I'm sure that the the info will come up. Yeah, Gr- absolutely. Great talking to you. It's a, it's a terrific story. Um, I actually was the editor of the story, and so, you know, I have a... I have a vested interest in, in people reading it too, but I, I just, uh, had a great time working on it. It's just this fascinating little slice of American history. Well, thanks, Steve, and I, it was great working with you as well, um, and I appreciate it. Now it's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a new pepper has been bred by crossing the habanero and the scotch bonnet to be the hottest pepper in the world. Story two, a subset of humans have been discovered who are immune to the so-called contagious yawn. If they see you yawn, they do not follow suit. Story three, people older than 65 have an increased risk of stroke if they live where there is significant traffic noise. And story four, thunderstorms on Earth have been found to produce antimatter. I'll be right back after this word from Kerry Smith at The Nature Podcast. This week, The Nature Podcast brings you orangutan genomes, a gene for social dominance, and biological clocks. TikTok. Catch The Nature Podcast on iTunes or at www.nature.com slash podcast. And your time's up. Story four is true. Scientists using NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope detected beams of antimatter produced above thunderstorms on Earth. They think the antimatter particles were formed in a terrestrial gamma ray flash, a brief burst produced inside thunderstorms and shown to be associated with lightning. The finding was announced at the recent American Astronomical Society meeting in Seattle. Story three is true. The elderly are at increased stroke risk due to traffic noise. That's according to a study in the European Heart Journal. The researchers think that noise interferes with sleep, which can increase blood pressure and stress. For more, check out the January 26th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. And story two is true. Only about 10% of kids under the age of four will yawn if they see you yawn. And only about the same percentage of autistic kids up to the age of 12 will catch a yawn. The work appears in the journal Child Development, and it implies that catching a yawn involves sophisticated social skills that the very young or autistic kids do not yet have. All of which means that story one about the new hottest pepper is totally bogus. But what is true is that there is a new pepper dubbed the Numex Halmundo, loosely meaning that it's a jalapeno as big as the world, and it's been bred specifically for use as jalapeno poppers, the breaded, fried, and filled with creamy cheese jalapeno treats. It's actually, the new pepper, a hybrid of a jalapeno and a bell pepper. The Halmundo is brought to you by the folks at the New Mexico State University Chili Pepper Breeding Program. It has a Scoville heat unit scale measure of 17,000, which means it has un pequeño fuego but will not result in muerte. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com where you can check out the slideshow on the germinators, amoeba farmers, and other organisms that grow their own food. 
And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet about each new article posted to our website. Our Twitter handle is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. And don't forget to get the free Scientific American Advances app for your smartphone. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>